going to look at those verses together um, this morning. Should we pray as we start? Father God, we thank you, Lord, that we can just come worship, Lord, and some of the, the words we get to say, Lord, as we, as we sing, as we open our hearts to you, Father, are so rich. Uh, Lord, what a privilege it is to be a Christian. Lord, the, the, the language we get to use of God of all the earth, Lord, is our biggest privilege. And Lord, that's kind of where we're going this morning. So Lord, be with us now as we look at these verses. Um, Lord, open our hearts. I pray that we hear your voice. Lord, that every other voice that may be sounded out, Lord, in the next however many minutes, Lord, actually that we would hear the whisperings and the, and the words of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you would speak to every single one of us, whether we're watching in this building, at home, Lord, or some other time. That Lord, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, we all know where we were, don't we, when it happened. When the news came through that Harry and Meghan... We're no longer going to be senior royal figures. There's a big gasp across the British media and across the whole of these United Kingdoms that Harry and Meghan, or as we now know them as Megxit, uh, we're going to take a step back from royal duty. Um, of course, we shouldn't actually be making jokes because it's, uh, it's a strangely controversial issue. Um, actually, my, my heart a little bit goes towards them. Uh, my heart certainly goes towards poor old Meghan, who's been ever so slightly vilified, um, perhaps. And there must be, in Harry's mind, uh, shades of Diana about the whole thing, dare I say it. Anyway, um, but there we are. So they're stepping back from rural life. They're going to split their time between Canada and the UK. Uh, and lots of questions have been asked over the last week, haven't they? Who's going to pay for their security? Where are they going to live? What about them doing up that bungalow that the British taxpayer paid for? All those kind of things. How are they going to fund it? What's going to happen? But the biggest question was, what on earth do we call them from now on? What are their titles? Will he be Prince Harry or just Harry or just H? Um, anyway, um, what, are we gonna, what do we call them? And uh, I woke up yesterday, I think the news came through that the Queen has told them they're not to be called his or her Royal Highness. And so... There goes the change. And that seems to be the biggest issue, doesn't it? What title do you use for this couple? Uh, titles matter, don't they? What you call someone matters. Uh, how you address someone often shows their place in an organisation or in society. It shows the status or the power they might have. If you call someone a member of parliament or the prime minister or the prime member of parliament, that shows the power he or her may or may not have. And titles actually make a great deal of difference, don't they, to what someone can or can't do, and what we think of a person as well. And so the removal of his or her Royal Highness from Harry and Meghan actually uh, is quite a big deal. And so uh, there's interesting times ahead for the British monarchy. Um, I did come across some other titles that uh, members of the royal family have. Um, some of them you may not be aware of. Uh, some of them take a little while for me to say. But uh, Queen Elizabeth II, our Queen, obviously, is known as, uh, this is one of her many titles, she is known as the Admiral of the Great Navy of the State of Nebraska. Is this Nebraska by the sea? My, my geography of the US is pretty rubbish. Is it by the sea? And no? So I'm not quite sure how they have a navy, but there we are. She is apparently, according to the internet, which is almost never right, uh, that... Prince Charles, Prince of Wales, is known as the Helper of the Cows. Uh, he was given that title in 2012 by the Maasai, Maasai of Tanzania. Uh, Prince Arthur, the, the older one, uh, was once known as Most High, Most Mighty and Illustrious Prince. 
A fantastic name. Imagine putting that on your envelope. What's your name? Well, I'm just a, you can call me Arthur, the most high, most mighty, illustrious prince. Anyway, Prince Philip, bless him, uh, is known, obviously, as the Lord of Her Majesty's Most Honourable Privy Council. But did you know that is only the shortened version of what Prince Philip is known as? <clears throat> this is <clears throat> the longer version of his actual title. Ready? You ready for this? Sitting comfortably? It goes on a bit. His Royal, Prince Philip, His Royal Highness, the Prince, Phil, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Merineth, oh, I've said that wrong, didn't mind, gloss over that, uh, Baron of Greenwich, Royal Knight of the Most order, Noble Order of the Garter, Extra Knight, in case they're one short, Extra Knight of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, Member of the Order of Merit, Grand Master and First and Principal Knight, Grand Cross of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Knight of the Order of Australia, Order Member of the Order of New Zealand, Extra Champion of the Queen's Service Order, Royal Chief of the Order of Logo, who? I'm sorry, I pronounced that incorrectly as well. Um, should have practiced this. Extraordinary Champion of the Order of Canada, Extraordinary, Extraordinary Commander of the Order of Military Merit, Canadian Forces Decoration. Lord of Her Majesty's Most Honourable Privy Council, Privy Councillor of the Queen's Privy Councillor for Canada, um, personal aide to Her Majesty, Lord High Admiral of the United Kingdom. Try getting that on a post, uh, an envelope. But titles matter, don't they? Titles tell you everything you need to know about someone. And actually, how you address someone tells you about the kind of relationship you have with them. Me, me and Andreas first started going out, which is a very old-fashioned term now. We must be getting older. That her mum and dad, I suddenly, over, even though I knew them from church, I became overcome with nerves for some reason for about three months. For about three months, I insisted that I called them Mr. and Mrs. Turner. I'd known them as Alan and Avril, but suddenly calling Alan Al seemed wrong all of a sudden. So, Mr. Turner, with a slight bow, hello, Mr. Turner, how are you, Mrs. Turner? And it went on for months. And in the end, Avril sat me down and she said, Please, <laughs> just call me Avril. I thought, Oh, I can't do that. Um, and then when I asked Andrea to marry me, I did take it a step too far when I said, do you mind if I now call you mum and dad? Which they, there was a, a hard no on that one. Never mind, what a shame. Um, but titles matter. It's our month of prayer this month, isn't it? And Dave spoke about prayer last week and we're thinking about prayer. We're devoting the church time to prayer. We're cancelling things. So we meet here every night to pray. And, uh, and there's so many things we could say about prayer. And this week I was thinking, what should I speak on this Sunday? What do you want me to speak on, Lord? And my mind immediately went um, to the Lord's Prayer, as perhaps you would expect it to. The Lord's Prayer is the most well-known prayer in the Bible. And, and I thought, oh, maybe I'm just kind of going there naturally. I don't know. But then I thought, well, it'd be okay. Some of you have never heard a talk on the Lord's Prayer, perhaps. There's so many things we can speak of God's coming kingdom, his will, deliverance, all those kinds of things. But every time I thought of it, something unusual happened. I got stuck on just two words. It reminded me of a story I heard once, which I've told you before, of a rabbi who couldn't get past the first two verses of the book of Genesis. And he got stuck every time he read the Bible on the phrase, and God said. He couldn't get past the fact that God spoke. That God as a God speaks and then speaks all of creation from nothing into something and kind of similar to that I thought I was just stuck on two words our father and then the whole prayer comes after that Rachel just read to us but our father and every time I thought of this prayer this week I found myself just thinking our father and I thought how do I get a sermon out of that but don't worry I've got one um, 
but our Father was a phrase that stuck to me. What a beautiful beginning to this most well-known of prayers. I mean, if you're unfamiliar uh, with the New Testament, with the Bible, uh, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are what's known as the Gospels. And this is where we get the story of Jesus Christ, his life, his birth, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven. And uh, and in the book of Matthew, uh, we have recorded five discourses, five kind of teachings, big teachings of Jesus about what it means to be a disciple of the King of Kings, a disciple of God in a sinful world and how you're supposed to behave as a Christian, how you're supposed to act, what you're supposed to think, what you're supposed to prioritize. And there are five of these big teachings in the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, which you may be familiar with that term, is the first of these big teachings and what it means to be a disciple of the King of Kings in a sinful world that is passing away and so what Jesus does in Matthew 5 6 and 7 is teach about the ethics of the coming kingdom of God as Christians we don't belong to this earth we belong to the coming kingdom of God we're called strangers we're walking through we're passing through this earth so what the world prioritizes we don't prioritize so money career those things are okay but we're not so bothered by those things because we belong to a different kingdom a better kingdom a better world that is coming that will outlast everything this world has. And so Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is Jesus teaching on how to act as if you're already there when you're here. And actually, if you've never reflected and kind of meditated on those three chapters in Matthew, I really encourage you to, because Jesus manages to cover what you do with your time, your money, prayer, fasting, everything. Covers everything. And it's a good thing to um, focus on. But right at the heart, of this teaching on the ethics of God's kingdom comes this Lord's Prayer, as we've come to call it, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And actually it's literally, almost literally in the center. I think there's something like 103 verses to the left and 106 verses to the right, I can't quite remember. But it, it literally, and in terms of literature, is at the center of this teaching. And it reminds us actually that to be a follower of Jesus Christ, prayer has to be central before everything else to how you live Most people try to be a good Christian, the ethics. And that's good. It's good to focus on that and challenge yourselves. But if prayer isn't at the heart of what you do as a Christian, you're going to be frustrated by trying to be better behaved or or a better Christian at work and at home because you're going to do it in your own strength. Actually, the Lord's Prayer enables us to change in the power and the strength of God. Um, And on that subject, I must tell you this little anecdote which you've heard before. That's well worth um, saying to people. If you want to know how popular a church is, see how many people come on a Sunday morning. And it goes on to say, if you want to see how popular the minister is, see how many people come on a Sunday evening. If you want to see how popular God is, see how many people come to the prayer meeting. There's a challenge, isn't there? If you've not managed to get to a, a prayer session in January, I urge you to show the devil just how popular God is in this church and come along and pray and pray and pray. So this well-known prayer of Jesus, the Lord's Prayer, starts with those two words, our Father. He deliberately starts with that phrase, with that little uh, two-word couplet, if you like. And this morning, I just simply want to explore that with, uh, with asking a few questions. The first question I want to ask is why? Why did Jesus use the word Father? And uh, what's interesting, actually, is Jesus had a whole plethora um, of names that he could have used for God. For God, 
He could have used all sorts of names. And these are uh, Hebrew names and one Aramaic name in the middle there. And Jesus could have used all sorts of ways of describing God as he started this prayer. Let me run through what some of these mean for you. <clears throat> Excuse my slightly Essex Hebrew accents. Um, Elohim means he is your God. That could have been, obviously, it would have been anglicized if it had been in our version. But he could have started with, this is your God, and then said that prayer. Elohim Kahim, he is the living God. Abba simply means father. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. What a great way of starting a prayer. The Lord will provide. That's what He could have used that name for God. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is my peace. He could have used El Elyon, he is your salvation. El Kanar, the jealous God. And by the way, if you've never heard God described as a jealous God, uh, you'd have grown up telling your kids not to be jealous of other people's stuff. That's not what it means. When the Bible speaks of God being jealous, it simply means that God wants back what is already his. So if you're a child of God and you've been distracted by the things of the world, God is jealous of the thing that has your attention. Not in a sinful way, but because you're his and he wants you back. So it's jealousy in a good way. He wants what's already his. Jesus could have used the Hebrew term El Roy. He sees you. He could have used the term Jehovah Roy. That's how I'm going to pretend it said. He is your shepherd. He could have used Jehovah Nissa. He is my banner. Jesus had literally tens and hundreds of different ways you could have used God to begin this well-known prayer, the Lord's Prayer. He decides to use the Hebrew word pater, as in paternal, for father. And it's really important. It's really important that it starts with this prayer with that name, Father, as it's written. Because it reminds us that actually prayer, number one, is intimate. That when you get on your knees or the side of your bed or you come to church, isn't just a, a kind of placid, cold thing that you do. You're having an intimate moment with the King of Kings. Father. We don't just say, King, here I am, here's my worries. It's Father, here I am, here's my worries. It's a really important reminder of who we are, that we get to call God Father. Galatians 4 reminds us that whenever we call God Father, that it reminds us that we are his children. Galatians 4, 5 to 7. Paul writes this, hang on. But, yeah, okay. Yes, to those, to those Sorry, let me start from verse 4. Actually. I don't know why I said verse 5. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because we are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, and the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Paul writes to the Galatian church, you're free from the law and you're adopted into God's family. You're able to call him Abba, Father. Abba's Aramaic. The word father there is Greek. I mean the same thing. You're going to call God Father. He's not just a God. He's your father. You are part of his family. Every time we pray that prayer, we're reminded that we are allowed to have a deep intimacy with God. In fact, Paul in Galatians 4 is quoting Jesus himself. Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was taken off, beaten, whipped, rejected, and then crucified for the sin of the world, your sin and mine, would say in verse 36 of Mark 14, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus, in that most distressing of moments where he sweat blood for you, 
because he was so stressed at what was going to come, prayed, Abba, Father. We're reminded, therefore, that prayer is the most intimate of acts between sinful human beings and a perfect God. There's no wonder Christians find it hard to pray because the devil knows once you know God intimately, he doesn't stand a chance. It does not stand a chance. Darkness will flee. Let me tell you a story because we crave that intimacy with God, don't we? We crave it above all things. Um, I heard this story. It's a, Spanish, a story of a Spanish father and son who had become estranged. The son ran away and the father set off to find him. He searched for months and months to no avail. Finally, in a last desperate effort to find him, the father put an ad in a Madrid newspaper. The ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. And so the story goes, on Saturday morning, 800 Pacos showed up, looking for forgiveness and love from their fathers. It makes the point, doesn't it? That we long for that intimacy with that father figure. And we can pray our father because Jesus reminds us that it isn't just getting the answer you want. It's knowing the person you need. That's the first question, why? Why did Jesus use that term to remind us that it's a verbal reminder that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're reminded as Christians who are a part of God's family. Who else gets to call God father? No one else. We use language we're so privileged to use on planet Earth. No one else gets to speak the way Christians speak of God. Second question, father of what? Um, that may seem a silly question, may seem obvious to you, but what is God actually father of? And there are three verses that have appeared behind me, which is good. Um, God is called father 418 times in the Bible. And actually his fatherly love, his fatherhood, if you like, is very broad. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 17 I'll just read this to you. It tells us that he is the father of the heavenly lights. He is over everything in the universe. James chapter 1 verse 17 writes this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose us, uh, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. God is described by uh, James as the father of the heavenly lights. In other words, he's the father of all of the universe, all of creation. He's not just the father of one person, I'm the father of two children, but God is the father of the whole of our universe. He, he birthed it, he, he started it, if you like. He made it happen. Not just that, he's the father of every living being, animals, intelligent beings, even the angels in that sense. He started and he's the originator of every single one. Again, if we flick over to Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 6, uh, Paul writes this of our God. He says, There is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. His fatherhood is over every living being, over every person, everything that moves across the ground. But more wonderfully, he is the Father of our own Lord Jesus Christ. After his baptism, Jesus, when he came up from the water, says a voice from heaven, Matthew 3, 17, says, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He's the father of literally the universe, of every living being. And he's the father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Which then your minds may be already going ahead of me to Hebrews chapter 2. 
when we read this from the writer of Hebrews, of Jesus himself, from verses 9 to, 7, 9 to 12. But we do see Jesus, the writer says, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect, that what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. How marvelous it is, not just that God is the Father, but Jesus the Son is our brother in that sense. He is the Father of everything, the Father of the universe. He is the Father of Jesus. And so when we say we're a part of God's family, we really are a part of God's family. How wonderful is the God that we get to be intimate and close with. Jesus reminds us in this prayer the scope of God's authority. And that's the key to really going forward in your faith. This is your God, big and strong, and yet you're in his family. And the next question, what does it mean? What does it mean, the word father? What's the definition of this mean? Well, there are kind of two definitions of the word father in the Bible. The first is what you'd expect it to be, as in kind of like an ancestor, like a, like a father figure who has a family behind him like someone at the top of the family tree. Imagine the sort of stereotypical uh, picture of an, an older man sitting with all the generations of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It means that. It simply means that to a certain point. God is the father of all. We are all a part of God's uh, creation. He is our founder, our forefather. It's that idea of a dad with lots of children and extended family. It brings the idea of an older man who is over, has authority over the whole family. Daniel chapter 7 describes God as the ancient of days. He has been there from the beginning, and everything comes from him. He is the origin of all. The Bible tells us that in him we live and move and have our being. We are his children in that sense, every one of us. You see, when someone becomes a Christian and they say, God is now my father, that's not strictly true, is it? You've always been God's creation, but you're either estranged from him or you're reconnected with him. So it's that idea of God being a dad to lots of children. But the word father is also a metaphor, a metaphor of God's honor, God's power, God's authority, how he acts fatherly. He acts as a father to all creation, all the animals in the fields and every person. Many people know God's grace, even if they don't know him personally. And we've got all these definitions. What a word the word father is. It's just one title Jesus could have used among many, many, many. And after this title, he then goes on to give us the prayer that is associated with it. Our father. He tells us that to this God, we can pray and we can grow. He says in this, this prayer tells us that our God has a kingdom that is coming that will outlast everything. This prayer tells us that he is strong that he has a will that will sustain and keep everything on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer tells us that this God, the Father, has power to forgive and deliver. And it is the most amazing word when you begin to unpick it. And there's much more, I'm sure, that we could study and to see about God as Father. But I said there were two words that really struck me. And the first word I've glossed over, because the first word is the word our. 
And what really struck me this week as I looked at, at, this, at this prayer of Jesus isn't just the word Father, but the word that comes before it. Our Father. Our Father. What really hit me this week is that this amazing God that we've had a snapshot of this morning is mine. Is mine. I get to talk like that. That's ridiculous. Who am I to say of God that he's mine? Yet Jesus says, this is how you pray, our, our father. It's kind of language of possession, isn't it? I am his, but he is mine. Though he is big and I am small, though he is holy and I am sinful, though he is complete and I am broken, I am allowed to say he is mine. He is mine. He is my God. He belongs in my life. Not, of course, of ownership, that would be silly, but of belonging, of family. Like you might say, he's my dad, that's my mum. Get off of her, she's mine, she spends time with me, or whatever you might say as a child. He is my father. To him we belong, but he belongs to us. And don't we long to belong as human beings? Aren't we searching for a foundation? Aren't we searching for a lap to sit upon, a chest to snuggle into? Isn't that what we're actually looking for? Arms to protect, wisdom to guide, a heart that loves and forgives over and over again. How blessed we are in Jesus Christ that in a world full of broken relationships, we can find perfect love in the care of the God of all the universe. How healing that is, how transforming that is, how confidence building that is to be able to say through faith in Jesus Christ, he is mine. I think it is the biggest privilege any human could ever have. He's mine and I am his. And once you get that, I promise you it can never be taken away. It can never ever be removed from you when you say our father, my father. He is mine and I am his forevermore. On Thursday, when Watutu came, I was, to put it bluntly, an emotional wreck. Child after child gave their testimony or just smiled and sang. But the thing that got me was right at the beginning, I thought I'm in trouble here, it's only been 10 minutes. It's when they sang the song, I am a child of God. And I watched them on the stage, these little kids who were all orphans, singing, I am a child of God. Of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear the song that we've sung many times in this church. And I thought, wow, he's theirs. And don't they know it? They know God is their God. And they're his. And they hold on tightly to him as tightly as God holds on to them. I thought, how wonderful it is. How I long for people in this country to have that powerfully simple understanding of the King of Kings. How close people come to a dynamic faith and veer away. How close we come to knowing God in all his glory, only to go back to the status quo. But he is mine and I am his. Jesus says, our father. We're in his family, but we are allowed to say, you're mine. You're my God. How wonderful is that? That's their story, but it can be yours. I wonder this morning, as I deliver this point, I wonder why that stopped me so much. I wonder how many people in this room or watching or watching later struggle with the idea that God loves you. I wonder how many in this room struggle with the concept of being a child of God. 
I wonder how many of you struggle with the idea that God is near, that God accepts you and loves you despite everything. I wonder how many people have never truly grasped the love of God. We're told to search, search out the depths and the width of the height of God's love. But the story of those Mututu kids can be your story this morning and mine. And there are three things you must do. The first thing you must do is believe. You must believe that God loves you, that God is your father through Christ. You must accept it. There's one thing to believe something, quite another thing to accept that it's true. And the third thing is you must stand on it, no matter what happens afterwards. He is our father. He is mine. And you are his and he is ours. I want to pray. And then um, we're going to sing, hopefully. Um, <laughs> since Julie run away, that's slightly, slightly nerve-wracking. Tim, you can just drum, can't you? Uh, drum there. We'll just sing acoustic. <laughs> um, sorry, Julie, we're going to carry on. I want to pray. Because um, I think it's for a reason, isn't it? Can I ask you to stand? Just because we've been sitting for a while. And I just want you to shut your eyes. I'm going to shut mine as well. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. And just in this moment, just ask yourself the question, can I say that God is mine? Are you able to say, God, you are my God? And if you've never even said that to him, maybe just say, Lord God, Father, you are mine and I love you. And just as we stand here, I wonder if some of you are struggling with the idea of a father in heaven who sees you and loves you. And there may be various reasons for that. But you need to do those three things. To believe, to accept and stand on that fact that he is your God, your father. Jesus could have called him anything in that prayer, but he called him father. So often, so many of us lack that fatherly figure for various reasons. God wants to be your father this morning. And if that's you, just accept, just let the Holy Spirit speak to you now. God is your Father. He loves you. Accept it. Accept it. Accept it. And make a decision this week to listen to what your Heavenly Father thinks of you, not your earthly Father. And let me pray. Father in heaven. Lord, we love you. And Lord, we stand here, sinners, broken, tiny. Lord, we're so often insignificant in each other's eyes. Yet, Lord, in your eyes, you see every hair on our head. Lord, you know every thought in our minds, you know every sin we've ever committed. And yet you are a God who is near. Lord, religion, all hollow religion, puts you far away and tells us we can never be near you unless we work our socks off. But faith in Christ simply means through the grace of and love that comes from your throne. Lord, not just that you're near to us, but Lord, you are with us in the most intimate of ways. We're able to call you Abba, Father. And Lord, I thank you in my life, you have been the Father that I lacked. You have been the one, Lord, who has guided me, and led me, and loved me, and shown me my value. And Lord, in this room and those watching, I pray, Father God, that they would see for the first time, maybe, Lord, the value they have, for their heavenly father, the true father of all. Remind us of the cross and the empty tomb. Remind us of the love that caused his only son to die in our place. But Lord, for those who are broken through earthly fathers, may they know the heavenly father's love, I pray.
Lord, I lift all this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.